I don't believe universal design is about not recognizing difference. It's exactly about recognizing differences. Welcome to the first episode of Thoughts. My name is Julian, and in this episode, I talk with Dr. Anthony Genomis about universal design. Anthony is an action researcher, social entrepreneur, and equality advocate. His work mainly focuses on fusing human rights in the design of technology. He is an international expert in universal design, so there's really nobody better for a conversation about this topic than him. Universal design is one of those topics that is really interesting to me. To be honest, it seems a little far-fetched to be possible, at least in today's world. But then again, the world how it is today probably also seemed far-fetched a hundred years ago. I hope you find this conversation as valuable as I did. Right, Anthony. Um, there, there was a million different ways I thought this mm. conversation could go, mm. but uh, I think the the only way to to base this conversation around is universal design, yes. um, because so much of your life um, is based around yeah. those two worlds. It's the center of gravity for my work, for my mindset. Uh, for the way I approach relationships, even uh, that it's it just it's a natural starting point, I guess, to uh, who I am or who I've become, I should say. Because I think universal design is less about who I am now, in the sense that it's not been omnipresent in my life. It's something that I've. Uh, it's a trajectory, kind of. It's a destination towards which I am pointing my life. And I think that's, uh, that's a, I guess, a different way of thinking about it. It's not something that's part of my DNA. It's not even something that uh, kind of fits naturally with my past and my world experience. But it's something that if you imagine it as kind of a funnel where all of my life's experiences have kind of been leading into this direction. And now there's a more uh, kind of uh, laser-like focus on this key issue uh, that I think is really critical for, I guess you could say, taking the world forward or all the cliches, like seeing the change that you want to become or whatever that saying is, you know, that sort of um, manifesto. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What is universal design? Um, I mean, I've known you for a few months now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I've understood your work yeah quite good but at the same time i don't really know if i fully have a grasp on yet sure what universal design really is and means to you yeah there it's a it's a it's a complex set of ideas wrapped up into those two words and it there's kind of the superficial way of thinking about universal design which in my book is the wrong way to think about universal design because we're not we're not really probing the depths of those words we're just kind of treating them as you know kind of easy and simple and i I think there's a a bit of a human tendency to want to keep things simple 
And that's okay. In some respects, that's fine. But if you're keeping things simple and in the process denying the complex realities behind whatever it is you're, you're, you're thinking about or whatever it is you're considering, then I think you're, you're basically just missing the point. You're basically missing everything. So I think the superficial version of universal design, and again, the wrong version, wrong way of seeing this, is just to create something for everyone. And in doing so, the kind of natural inclination is to just create the something for the lowest common denominator. And then, okay, well, that's kind of a generic, vanilla, boring solution that works for everyone, but not really works for anyone. Um, and so that way of thinking, I think, is the most, I would say, most common or most... It's a, it's a point of entry for a lot of people when they think about universal design. And that might be motivating for people. That might be inspiring for them to think, oh, yeah, we can create something for everybody. Yay. Uh, but it's it's very, very misleading. And I think the misleading part of it is that word universal. As I think that by making something universal, by making something that is for everyone, that somehow it has to be bland, vanilla, and boring, um, that it can't be specialized and customized, and it can't be something that reaches groups of people who are at the very edge of society, the very edge, the very most marginalized groups. And so that we start to, we can start kind of leading people into a more interesting direction for universal design, which isn't about creating bland, boring, vanilla solutions that kind of work for everybody, don't, but don't really work for anyone. Uh, but start in getting them into thinking about these highly customizable, highly adaptable uh, solutions that can, f can enable people who are at the most extreme uh, edges, the most socially excluded groups of people to then come into all aspects of our society on a toe-to-toe, -to -toe, equal basis with everyone else. So we imagine this kind of difference between those who are included, those who are excluded, those who are marginalized, then bringing those marginalized groups into where they can participate on an equal basis as people who are already part of all of social life. Um, and so I guess maybe the, an, an easier way of thinking about this is kind of like when we first started giving different groups of people the right to vote, right? So there are excluded people. You are not allowed to, write, uh, to vote because of who you are. And now we're changing those laws and we're saying, okay, it's okay for you to vote now. Um, and, you know, there's a, a bit of a paradox just with that premise. But if we think of it in those terms, then we can think about universal design in the same way. So the way products and services, the way the world around us is designed, the things we use every day, uh, is designed for people who are already included in society. So we want to design those things for people who are not explicitly shut out, but implicitly there uh it's a it's it's um so the universal design is a design philosophy and approach to the way we design things that caters to those mo those extreme users those most marginalized groups um, and so the dictionary definition comes down to universal design is the design of we can say products and services to be usable by all people without the need for adaptation or, or specialized design um, and so those words are, you know, those are just dictionary definitions words. The way we think about it is different than always in the way it's defined. So when we think about universal design, we have to start from the basis that it's not about designing for people who are already 
included in society. It's about designing for people who are excluded from society. And so when we when we go when we start looking at it from in those terms then we have to start understanding who are those groups who are excluded from society and in what ways do they experience uh, marginalization or disadvantage or what ways do they experience barriers when it comes to participating in any aspects of society whether it's again voting or going to work uh, getting on the train to go to, uh, you know, your wherever, uh, whether it's using a piece of tech, it doesn't matter what it is. If they experience a barrier in some a way to participating, to doing something, um, then we want to identify that barrier and eliminate that barrier through the design process. Uh, so by recreating something, creating something new, we want to make sure that those barriers are eliminated. So that group of people, that those, uh, that person even, can then have access to uh, whatever product or service it is, whatever environment it is, on an equal basis as those who are already included in those uh, in those spaces. Uh, a a long winded way of saying we want to create a world where everyone can participate equally. Amazing. Um, that was uh, at least made me understand it a lot better than I I had until now. But I th I think I I would love to to hear from you why we exclude people mm -hmm. and why we include other people. Why do we as a society um, favorite? Yeah some kind of people and mm, mm, mm. exclude other kind of people. Sure, um, sure, sure. Um, so, all right, there's a couple of, <laughs> there's a, it comes down to a couple different things. It's a great question. My brain is, is going a mile a minute now. Um, there's kind of deliberate, what I call explicit exclusion. All right. So we had that a lot before the civil rights movement where uh, certain groups of people were, uh, there was rules that set up that said, you are not allowed to do this. Right. So women were not allowed to participate in some universities and colleges and different places around the world because it was just, that was the rule. Um, well, for whatever reason, women were just not allowed to participate in those spaces. Um, African Americans and people of color in the United States were excluded from uh, eating in public restaurants and doing a whole bunch of different things uh, actively. So they were explicitly excluded in the law. They were not allowed to do that. The, the voting thing that we just talked about. So there are groups of people who are not allowed to vote. Hmm. If you are of this characteristic, you are not allowed to do something. So there's explicit inclusion. And then there's what I kind of think of as implicit exclusion. And that happens when the decisions we make, the kind of rules that we have aren't targeted at excluding a group, but the result of those rules exclude a group. So exclusion becomes like a secondary result. So when you, you can do something, uh, for example, if you, uh, in a workplace, if you don't allow an employee to take uh, five or 10 minutes to pray, right, then you're kind of implicitly excluding them, a, a, an employee of faith, from the workplace, right? It's not targeting that group of religious uh, believers. You're not saying that you can't come to work, you can't work here. You're just saying, oh, well, you can't have five minutes break 
to do whatever you want or to do it whenever you want. Um, and so there was a law that came out in the United States in the 1970s uh, that focused on providing accommodations. And what that meant was that companies, businesses, whomever, they have to provide some what are called reasonable accommodations. So basically they have to provide some flexibility for their employees. So they don't exclude groups of people from the employment, uh, from employment. So it, so it get this implicit kind of exclusion gets into this issue of, well, we've made a rule. The rule isn't specifically excluding a specific group, but the result of that rule is that a group is excluded. Um, I'm trying to think of another way. So maybe not providing uh, um, uh, parental leave uh, can be seen as an exclusionary rule. Uh, so if you provide prevent parental leave, you're more likely to have women coming to the workplace because women are uh, you are often the primary caregivers of children, uh, and so. When you provide parental leave, especially if you provide, provide maternal leave, you're more likely to have women coming to work at your, your business. So by not providing that, that's a kind of a form of implicit exclusion. It's a rule that you've created. We don't have a parental leave here. And because of that rule, you're less likely to have women coming to work at that place. And then you have a gender imbalance, right? So it's an exclusionary uh, kind of non-rule. Uh, maybe that's a little bit uh, awkward of an example. Uh, another way of thinking about it is, uh, let's, talk, let's talk about this design examples. Another way of thinking about it is if I design a building and the only way of getting in or out of the building is to go up a flight of stairs, right? So you got to get into the building, you got to walk up a flight of stairs. In order to get out of the building, you have to walk down a flight of stairs. There's nothing in the design of that building that says you who are using a wheelchair, you're not allowed to come here. People with wheelchairs are allowed to come in, into that building, but because of the way the building is designed, they, there's, not, uh, there's not the opportunity for them to enter or exit the building because the only way they would be have doing that is if there was a ramp, uh, the only reasonable way of doing that. Um, and so there, you know, this idea of accommodation and accessibility, so this is an issue also of accessibility, the ability to access a space, um, has evolved over a number of years. And so there have been arguments as, as ludicrous as, Oh, to, to go back to the example of the building with stairs, there's been arguments as ludicrous as, oh, well, we'll just have somebody posted at the front of the building and they can carry the person up the stairs. But no, that doesn't make any sense at all. You, you, it's, there's something basically undignified about doing it that way. So even though there's a possibility to do it another way, it doesn't mean we should. And universal design is not about what we can do, it's about what we should do. And what we should do in all spaces, uh, all, all the things that we're creating, is making sure that everyone can equally access and use those uh, products and services in those environments. So I think about inclusion and exclusion in those ways. Now, there's a high, there's a couple of higher level issues at stake here that are worth us talking about because the reason why we have a society that is so exclusionary, that does exclude groups of people, is because certain groups of people have uh, positions where they uh, have a lot of power and they have a lot of resources. And there's been research that shows that the reason why those power structures exist goes back hundreds and hundreds 
hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's not something that's just happened all of a sudden, you know, in the last decade. It's something that you can literally trace back in people's family lines to see that in the, you know, 1000 people's uh, family heritage have led them to the point where they are today to be able to have and own that power. And because of the power difference between groups of people, uh, you end up in a situation where two people who are born at the same time, even who are born in the same place, same country, say, even born in the same city and sometimes even born in the same neighborhood, will not have equal chances for achieving success. That's not to say that they that in all cases they won't achieve success or that one will achieve success and the other won't. It's only to say that the chances for one person to achieve success versus another are significantly reduced, almost to the point of zero, okay? The universal design looks at trying to correct that imbalance and trying to enable people who historically have been marginalized, um, again, going back thousands of years, uh, an opportunity to have a reasonable chance at achieving success in their life, whatever they define success as. Now, there's no predetermined, this is the only way of succeeding in life. And I think that's where people also get a lot uh, messed up a lot, is they think there's only one uh, goal. Everybody has the same goal, and there's, that goal is only this, whatever that is. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, what we need to understand about these issues of power and privilege is that in order for everyone to succeed, the chances for achieving success have to be reasonably the same. Uh, and the problems that we have in society is that because of the power imbalances, we've created a world, we've created a, a social environment, a life where uh, the people in positions of power have created power structures that enable groups of people that are like them and uh, disenfranchised, disadvantaged people who are not like them. Um, and so universal design, again, just comes back to kind of writing that historic wrong in some, some serious way, but it doesn't do it because what we've, what we've done in the past is really tried to fix these power imbalances through laws and legislation. So we passed a lot of laws that say you can't discriminate against this person, this person, this person. We passed a lot of laws that say, you know, it, you, that try to provide supports for people who live in poverty or try to provide supports for uh, people who live in low income neighborhoods. We try to provide supports for women to enter careers that are where they're underrepresented. Uh, we've tried to provide supports for people with disabilities to participate in different aspects of society. Um, and those laws have been great. Those laws have got us where we are today. But those laws are also very top down. So it's the governments of the world, it's the United Nations and all the national governments of the world saying, you citizens, you companies, if you're going to do business here, you have to obey these laws. What we found in the last uh, few decades is that in large part, compliance with these laws is messy. So we like to think that you pass a law and all of a sudden everybody starts obeying the law, but we know, you know, we look at seatbelt laws even, you can have a law that says you have to wear a seatbelt and people still don't wear seatbelts, right? So we have to understand why there's this non-compliance issue because we have laws that say companies have to be accessible, they have to be universally designed, and yet we still look around ourselves and there's still people that are excluded. So 
in the last couple of decades, what we've been trying to focus more and more on is less on the top down. Now that we have the laws, we don't have to worry so much about the top down, but look more at the bottom up. And that's what universal design is really poised to deal with. It deals with uh, this issue of inequality and exclusion from a grassroots level. So it says, rather than just passing another law that people may or may not obey, let's tackle this issue from the bottom and see if we can influence the ways in which the people uh, working in companies, uh, people who are just living their everyday life, ways in which they think, the ways in which they act, so that universal design becomes not just a top-down rule, law, but a bottom-up way of living. Mm. I'd like to go back to the grassroots yes. of universal design mm-hmm. and uh, what's causing mm-hmm. inequality and exclusion. Mm-hmm. On the grassroots level? Yes. You talked about power structures? Uh, yeah. I mean, power structures operate kind of at the backs of people's consciousness. So it's not like I go, anyone goes into a room and says, oh, I have power, you don't. Right. There's never a, a necessarily an explicit acknowledgement of that, but it operates at the backs of our minds. It's oper- It influences our behaviors. Uh, it, it's part of our um, wiring, uh, the way we are socialized. Now, inequality and exclusion uh, from kind of a grassroots level uh, can be uh, can be perpetuated. Uh, and in some ways based on how we are raised as children. So we can be raised as children to look at certain groups of people as being inferior. We can be raised as as children to look at uh, even to uh, kind of put some um, uh, expectations on certain groups of people in different ways. So women experience, uh, a lot of women have experienced uh, this um, in the areas of science, mathematics, computer science, and things like that, where, uh, especially technology, oh, that's not your domain. That's not something for you as a little girl. That's something for your, your baby brother, right? So you, your, your, your gender role, we'll say, is to, uh, wear pink and uh, play with kitchen toys and to uh, play with your dolls in kind of this uh, fake way of putting them into this mother role, right? Uh, as kind of their only option for the future is to grow up, become an adult and have children. Uh, and in the, we, we kind of treat boys in a little bit different ways, right? And a lot of people like to think, oh, no, this is part of their genetics. Women, men and women are just you know, genetically predetermined to be, act in a certain way. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that men and women genetically are identical. They're obviously not. But those social ways of thinking about men and women are driven by how we are raised and what we're told by the communities in which we live. And that includes what the media tells us about how men and women should act and behave and the role models we look to in TVs and movies and in newspapers and everything else that we, all other media that we've consumed for the past, however long media has been a thing. So when we put those expectations on different groups of people, we put those kind of, put them in a certain role, cast them in a certain role, then it automatically positions them to expect a certain, certain things from themselves. 
And so it becomes this almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're being told as a child, you're supposed to do and act this way. And then they grow up and they become an adult and they do and act that way. And then we wonder why there's inequality. Well, that's why there's inequality. That's one reason why there's inequality is because we're raising people to treat others unequally. And we're raising people to treat themselves in a different way than they treat uh, someone who doesn't share their, their characteristics. Uh, those characteristics, whatever they may be. So yeah. that could be if I'm an excluded, uh, if I'm part of an excluded uh, society, mm-hmm. that I'm excluding myself because I'm programmed to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where this idea of kind of internalized misogyny comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so misogyny is basically, uh, to put it in a stupid way, treating women badly right? Uh, Typically by men, but there's this concept of internalized misogyny where women uh, treat other women and themselves as being inferior to men in some way. And so you, you, I found this, I found this kind of in my personal life quite a bit where women, uh, they, again, they cast themselves in certain roles. Oh, I can't do this because I'm a woman, whatever this is, whether it's, uh, I've heard it in relation to fixing a car, using technology, learning math, everything like that. I can't do this because I'm a woman, right? They attribute their lack of skill, knowledge, ability to their gender. When in fact it has nothing to do with their gender. It has everything to do with the way in which they were raised. They were probably told from a very early age, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And then no wonder they think they can't do that. Of course they think they can't do this. And even if it's not directly from their parents, a lot of times it is, but even if it's not, even if their parents are really good role models and they teach their children, you can do whatever you want, whatever you put your mind to, there's still the media, there's still the community at large. So they, that child may be learning those lessons from some other place. They may be learning from their schoolmates. They may be learning from their teachers. They may be learning it from the TV programs and movies they watch. And all of these, this is a part of the, this is why the scope of the problem is so large and complex is because you can't raise a child in isolation. You can't raise them in a bubble. So the minute you pop that bubble and they have any kind of influence or stimuli from outside of their own scope of reference, including their parents, uh, you automatically end up in a situation where uh, people who are excluded have to fight against the kind of inertia, the social inertia of an exclusionary society. Uh, And that's, you know, if you want to solve a a million dollar problem, that's the problem to solve right there Mm -hmm. is how do you reform? How do you help an individual and empower an individual when everything that there is, they're surrounded with practically everything that they're surrounded by is shouting to exclude them. Uh, and that's, I don't know if there's really good lessons there. It's just kind of Mm. a problem. Yeah. It's a huge problem. Yeah. Well, maybe universal design is the answer. That's, uh, I'm not saying actually that universal design is the answer to that. I think there's, it is inequality is such a huge and complex issue. Universal design is not going to fix it, but what universal design does give us is a set is a way of thinking and a set of tools, kind of some instruments with which we can begin to take the next step into eliminating inequality to promoting equality. Um, and I think, so I think that's where hopefully we can go as a society. I don't think universal line is the end game. 
even though I'm pointing my career to, uh, as, at universal design as an end game, but it's an only, only an end game because I'm only going to live so many years and I don't think we're going to achieve universal design by the time I pass away. <laughs> uh, it may be something that subsequent generations have to take up. But it may be that a, a different idea emerges, an even more powerful idea that helps drive people f into this, uh, into um, a new way of thinking about others, basically. Because uh, that's all Universal Design really gives us, is, is this new way of thinking about people who aren't like us. Mm. And when I say us, I just mean whoever you are, anybody that's outside of that us perspective. When you think about others, it's a new way of thinking about those groups of people. Is there any good reason to why we don't think of those groups of people in the first place? Um, you know, I've read some research about how people perceive uh, people who don't look and don't appear like themselves. Um, and, cause so this is part of the kind of what was called othering of people. Um, and so I think even with, uh, young children, there is, uh, you kind of recognize similarities and differences. The problem starts when we put a normative or a value system on those differences. Okay. So it's one thing to recognize difference. And I don't, I don't believe universal design is about not recognizing difference. It's exactly about recognizing differences uh, because you can't fix inequality if you don't recognize it. If you pretend like everybody's equal, then universal design is not, is not for you. It's, that's not going to help. Um, but if you understand that people are unequal and you can find ways of enabling people to uh, be included, then that's, that's where universal design comes in. So I think it's the challenge is, okay, we recognize that there are differences. Now, what are the value systems we put on those differences? And a, most of the time, what happens is people put a positive value system on one group and a negative value system on another group. Again, not always explicitly. It's not always people being racist or sexist out, outwardly. A lot of times it's just a, Uh, it's kind of a background uh, feeling, you could say, about that 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 uh, influences the way we think and the way we act in certain situations. Uh, and so, things that you may not be, oh, I am racist, and so therefore I, you know, hate this group of people. I'm sexist, so therefore I, I hate this uh, these, this gender or that gender. Um, it's it's more about the ways. The, the ways we value certain things and how that influences our perceptions, how that influences the way we think, how that influences the way we behave. Um, so if we're automatically putting, and this is, a, I mean, the media governs so much of this and the media for a long time has had a very black and white view of good and bad, right and wrong. It's been binary. There's either good or bad. If you're not one, you're the other, right? There was no gray area. And in life, in the world around us, there's always a gray area. Now, you can always point to extremes that are truly bad and evil and truly good and, and sacred, you could say. But then, with the exception of those very, very isolated individuals or experiences or instances, everything else is gray. 
And so we've done, the media has done a really crappy job up until I would say recently of painting everything in black and white terms, good and bad terms. And they've only recently gotten to the point where they're able to cast characters and relationships in a way that showcases uh, the complexity of what it is to be human and that good people do terrible things and terrible people do really good things. And again, it's not about the extremes. It's about that middle gray area of, well, this person was both good and bad. My favorite example of this is from Les Mis. Uh, there's two characters, the two uh, main characters in that, in that um, book uh, that later became a, a musical, that later became a movie and whatever. Uh, or maybe it was a movie before the movie, I don't know. Anyways, it was a book, uh, amazing book. Uh, two main characters, Jean Valjean and Javert. Jean Valjean was the, is the kind of leading protagonist. And he is a criminal that became reformed, right? So he did something bad, but he became ostensibly a good person. But because of what he had done that was bad, he was, uh, society was holding him to account for those that bad thing that he did, which he stole a loaf of bread and broke out of prison. But so that just shows that there's not good or bad. It's that character, I think, really embodies uh, this mix of a, a good person doing bad things and that that's fine. What is the book called? Uh, Les Miserables. Les Miserables. Um, the other flip side of that is the character Javert, which is he's a police officer uh, and he works really hard to uphold the law. But he came from very humble origins. His mother was a sex worker and, you know, he was born out of marriage, which, of course, at the time was a huge deal. And but grew up, became a police officer, kind of picked himself up by his bootstraps. And so he's been spending his life trying to prosecute Jean Valjean, who is this, he did something bad and he became good, right? So then he has a fundamentally flawed character. And of course, in literature, there's, you can point out thousands of characters like this. Problem is, I think more or less when the movie and TV industry started, they, they took a little long time to get to the point where we're consuming media that is reflective of the complexity of what it means to be human and that there aren't simply good and bad sides. It's not just light and dark. Uh, yeah, happy and sad. <laughs> there's more to being a human than that. I'm trying yeah. to think if there's a modern way, a modern, a more modern uh, story. Because the Star Wars movies are really kind of bad about that. They're, everything is good or bad. You know, you're either mm -hmm. Je Jedi or a Sith. Uh, the Marvel movies and stuff like that are also pretty bad about that. Although some of the characters have some complexity to them, uh, but there's not enough. There's not enough painting that gray in really stark, vivid detail where you can see that this is a complex character that has to make decisions that result in trade offs in their you know their ethical and their ethics uh, to be a, to be a person that is fundamentally a good person but have to make an ethical decision where they do something bad that there's torment there uh, and i think we don't uh, i think for too long and especially children's cartoons are so bad about this uh they for too long we've just painted people one way or the other you're either a good guy or you're a bad guy you can't possibly be a good guy that does bad things or a bad guy that does good things yeah i don't know that's that's the end of that rant <laughs>
I guess it's a lot lot easier to just uh, paint something one way, not the other way. It is. It's a lot easier to compartmentalize. And I guess maybe that's also part of the um, the psychological basis for this, for inequality, is that people want to... Um, synthesize things and put them into a box because they're easier to understand that way. Yeah. It's easier to paint one group of people as being this way and another group of people being this way. There's so much money dumped into painting men and women as binaries. Hmm. If men want this, women want the opposite. If women want this, men want the opposite. And like we've set this kind of uh, conflict up between men and women in such a very strange way such that it contradicts a lot of people's reality and a, and a lot of other people what they actually want in their life because they set up these expectations for me as a man I have to think and act a certain way and I have to like and not like certain things and they set the same thing up with women uh, and so it's just it's fundamentally I understand why people are attracted to it because it simplifies things. On the other hand, it makes things really oppressive yep. if you don't fit into that kind of box. And I think the majority of the population just doesn't fit into that box. Even if that box is attractive to them, they may not fit into that box. And then in doing so, they're going to be oppressing their own desires and wants, their own needs. And most of the time it'll be inconsequential, but a lot of the times it is very consequential sure. because they can suffer from uh, terrible mental health issues. And, uh, and it's, it's this, yeah, it's a, the, the source of origin of a lot of suffering in the world. I think uh, society is putting expectations on us, how we should behave based on who we are. Uh, and then it forces us into that, our own expectations of our own behaviors. And then for when, when, for whatever reason, our needs and wants contradict that. And we even end up, we end up in a situation of internal conflict where we're hating ourselves because of who, what we want and what we need and what society is telling us we should need and want. And then, uh, or you end up being this, what society kind of looks on as being, Oh, you know, you're, you're an extreme human being, or you're just, you're weird or strange or different somehow. And because of that, you don't deserve the same like level of respect or attention or whatever it is. Um, and so that's just, it's, it's really problematic. It's really, uh, where I, I wish we could be at a point now where we didn't need that, those things. Mm. But, um, I, I guess my greater wish is that we can get to the point where, uh, there's a bigger spectrum of what we think of as what it is to be human. And I think we've, we've grown a lot. I don't want to discount where we've come from to get to where we are now. Um, where we are now is fine. It's better than where we came from, but we're still nowhere near of like, uh, like the the default being acceptance. And then the only time we don't accept something about someone is under very, very extreme situations. Right now it's kind of default. If you don't fit into one of these two packages, one of these two binaries, whether it's gender or anything else, then we automatically throw you out of what we think of as normal, typical, average, whatever person is or ideal, even whatever the fuck that means. 
So yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I think there's a, there is a biological tendency to want to simplify and want to keep things compartmentalized, and a lot of that happens because of evolutionarily where we came from, which was an animal that was more or less constantly under threat, and so if there was a rustling in the bush and you didn't you know either fly fly or flee flee or fight then uh you might not live long enough to procreate and so then uh, over thousands of years you know we got to a point where we are now so we're primed to see a threat where a threat doesn't exist yeah and so not anymore yeah exactly exactly so but i think we're at a point in time in society where we can accept that even though we might see a threat where a threat doesn't exist, we don't have to act on it in a way that shows that or that casts it as a threat. Um, and I think this comes back to what I was just saying about putting people into these compartments. If we put people into the box of they're a threat, then we're that that's problematic because we're seeing a problem where there's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, and so we need to find better ways of, of uh, looking at the world around us. That's what universal design gives us. It's a different way of looking at the world around us. It's a powerfully different way of looking at the world around us. So it's all about awareness, right? Yeah, that's what absolutely. It comes down to. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have ahead of us with universal design is fundamentally about awareness, is bringing that consciousness and that uh, recognition to the fact that we live in an unequal society and that we can take deliberate steps on a grassroots level on an individual level to rectifying that. Um, Because at least when I was growing up, it was more or less seen like this. Oh, the world's unequal. You know, we're, we're, everything is kind of shit. Well, who's responsible for fixing that? Uh, The government. And then it became like, well, corporations are there, so they should probably take a role too. And, but now the way my thinking is, slowly evolved is or your other option was go out into the streets and protest until somebody up in the highest levels makes a change so right so it always came back to top down so the universal design kind of flips things on its head completely and says okay this is not about uh protesting in the streets to make government act a certain way this is not about making a new law this is not about a company doing what's right or what's responsible this is about my and the community that i live in everyday actions and behaviors and what we can do to help support a more equal society. And in doing that, the hope is that the power structures will eventually become, uh, will eventually resolve themselves in some ways. That people in positions of power will acknowledge the need to give power to others so that others have that same opportunity to do what they were able to do in their lives. And I think that's um, that's part of the problem with power is that it really can't, I don't believe power can be shared effectively. I don't think we can share power. What I think okay. we can do is we can give power and we can take power. And the challenge that we've had is the people who are in power keep taking more power and they're not giving others power. And I think you can do that if you take the time and take a step back. And if you really care about other people and you care about people who are at the margins of society and you want to see them flourish, give them power, put them into positions of power and let them try to make their own way and support others who are near them and around them and who uh, are part of their community. I think that can be enabling. And I think this is what's behind a lot of the 
like sustainable development agenda, for instance, it's about redistributing power in some sense. Um, now, I won't go the completely kind of utopian view of like, okay, everybody should be have the equal should be equal in all respects. When I talk about equality, what I talk about is equal opportunities, be equal chances for achieving success. And that may read differently depending on the person. Uh, a person's chances for success, what they want, what they define as success for their life is, will be vastly different from another person's. And it should be vastly different from another person's. If we all want the same things, that's problematic. And so that's, again, gets back to this idea of we need to uh, find ways of changing the narratives that media has so that we're not all fighting for the same thing that a lot of us don't want. Right. Um, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I don't want to be a, a surgeon, a medical doctor. I am very happy and comfortable in the life that I've chosen for myself. And I would be very happy and comfortable in a lot of other professions and the ways of working. So it's, it's not so much about putting everybody into the same box of success. It's about showcasing that there are a lot of boxes for success enabling everyone to have a reasonable chance at getting into whatever box they want to if there are infinite number of boxes i think that's what uh universal design can really enable us to achieve uh, or at least take us one step towards right so choose our own path and uh, yes don't uh, let structures that have been put in place exactly. hold you back Exactly, exactly. Being able to choose your own path and not having that path dictated by others' expectations of us. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. That's, That's very powerful. powerful shit, right? Uh, yeah, we shall see. Cool. I mean, I've, I've often been called an idealist in that, you know, I, I believe in some kind of utopia, but um, I'm also very pragmatic and in some ways cynical of where we are today because hmm. uh, I think we're so far off the mark and I don't see that in the last, in my lifetime that we've gotten, in some respects, we've gotten closer to the mark, whatever that mark might be. But um, there's also, there's a lot of retrogressing. It's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Okay. Hmm. Let's let's dive deeper into that. Okay. What what can I do um, mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. um, to to make a difference to become more universal? Uh, no matter if I'm privileged or, mm -hmm. or underprivileged, how mm -hmm. can I develop mm -hmm. awareness? Um, I think, well, the number one thing is just to educate yourself. Uh, I think uh, education is still a very powerful tool. Um, I say still because the value of education for your social mobility, uh, I think the recent research has shown that, that that has been reduced. So where education was the answer to everyone's social mobility, like if you want to move up in society, uh, if you want to have a good quality of life, get an education and suddenly that will improve. There's still a baseline level for saying, yes, that's true. But I think it's also uh, education is also not the only f way of, of mobilizing ourselves socially. And it's certainly not formal education. It's certainly not the only means 
for achieving that ambition and that goal. Where should I start if I want to educate myself? Um, I think, I mean, the web is fucking great, man. I mean, we got this wonderful um, tool for learning anything that might be out there. So I think a lot of people take a lot of joy into like jumping down rabbit holes, right? Yep. And so if you, if you want to jump down a rabbit hole, just throw Google, Universal Design into Google and learn as much as you can. Being aware that not only is there, there might not be false information about Universal Design, it's not a field where people have been putting up a lot of propaganda, but there is a lot of old information about Universal Design. So if you want the kind of state of the art stuff, you kind of got to seek it out and you really got to find ways, new ways of, of thinking about this older issue because Universal Design came out in the 90s. It was based on ideas that came out in the 60s and 70s. So I think that number one thing, educate yourself. Uh, learn about it. Learn about universal design. Learn about equality. Learn about inequality. Uh, learn about the basic fundamental structures in society. I think that is really, really valuable to the way people think. It changed my life. When I was 18 and I took my first sociology class, 18, no, I was 20. Anyways, blew my freaking mind. I, I opened up a whole new world of thinking to me. Uh, and then I was able to kind of look at the person across from me in a whole new light because I wasn't looking at them as being, oh, of course they have the same life as I do. You know, we're from the same area. We were the same this, that, and the other, the, my expectations of their life, but then showing me, okay, if we look at this from a broader perspective, we look at this from a, uh, population societal level, we see that there's these, uh, these trends and these uh, ways in which people behave. And then looking at the person across to myself and saying, oh my gosh, you are not the person I thought you were. You're this whole, you're influenced by a whole separate set of systems than I was. And then having some capacity for empathy, we can understand that, hey, there's something fundamentally wrong with that if they're not given the same opportunities that I'm given. And so then we can set ourselves on the track of trying to find ways of righting those wrongs, of correcting these imbalances. Um, so I think that's where we start. And then I would say the next step is, is probably uh, what else do you surround yourself with? Look at the people who are in your life. If the people who are in your life kind of more or less are like you, uh, either in whatever way, um, you know, think about finding ways of pe bringing people into your life who don't share that same background, that same perspective. And I guarantee you, your life will become so much richer. I love meeting people who are vastly, who have vastly different experiences than I do because I can learn so much from that. And I'm just a geek. So when I meet somebody new, I'm like, oh my God, I want to know everything about you because you have led such a different life than me. And I, and so when I work, when I have to work with people who do share more or less my background, I'm kind of not disappointed, but not very invigorated or inspired because mm -hmm. it's just like, okay, you know what? We're just going to talk to each other. Like it's like talking in a mirror. I get bored talking in the mirror. Um, so I think the number two thing would be look at the people in your life and find ways of drawing people into your life who are not like you in some way, shape or form and learning from them learning from their experience. It's not about bringing people into your life and telling them how they should be living. It's about bringing people into your life and learning how they have lived and how they've managed to survive, how they've become resilient. And, you know, in a selfish way, you can draw a lot of strength from that. But in an empathic way, you can understand more about how to build bridges, how to fix some of these problems in society, how to right these wrongs and correct these imbalances. I think that would be the number two. And I think honestly, that might be, those might be the only ways of doing, of achieving it. Learning and 
socializing, like that's for lack of a better word, is just connecting with other human beings who are, don't share the same experiences you share, mm. you have. Yeah. If I'm a privileged person, a person mm. of power mm. in today's world, what concrete things mm. can I do to, to make the issue a to, little bit smaller? To use your power and use your privilege, I think uh, at least the approach that I've taken is to find ways in which you can channel resources and opportunities to people and to groups of people and attention, attention is kind of a resource, uh, to groups of people who are marginalized and who are excluded. Um, so this is not about uh, bringing the focus on you, it's about redirecting the focus from you to those groups who, are, uh, who experience any form of marginalization. So it's really uh, using your power to effectively um, empower others. Uh, and power is an addictive thing. And you, once you start accumulating power, you just want more and more and more of it. But I think uh, if you can act selflessly and find ways of redirecting those resources, whether financial, or human or other, uh, into the hands, into control of people who don't share those same positions of power, then you can be, you can really effectively uh, kind of flip the script. Now, the second reason, the second way, it would be uh, mentoring. I think mentoring people who are different than you, first of all, you learn so much from them, but then uh, you can uh, empower them by giving them opportunities uh, that you, you, uh, that you can create for them. And again, this is kind of gets back to what I said before about surrounding yourself with people who are different than you. Surrounding yourself in your work uh, with uh, diversity can really empower different groups of people because now the most likely candidate for either the job you hold now once you leave it or a job that opens up working in the same capacity or a similar capacity will likely go to your nearest neighbor. And if your nearest neighbor is somebody who's not like you, that person's gonna suddenly get a bump up in their career, they're gonna get a bump up in their salary, they're gonna get a bump up in the opportunities they have ahead of themselves. So surrounding yourself with diversity, uh, mentoring those uh, that don't have the op same opportunities that you've had, uh, and mentoring doesn't have to be formal mentoring. It doesn't have to be, okay, you become part of a mentor program. But in surrounding yourself with diversity, take that opportunity to learn about others, uh, to find ways of championing them, like telling other people, wow, this person knows how to do this, this, and this. That's really awesome. They should be, you know, they considered to do this, that, or the other thing. Um, to uh, help nurture them and help kind of guide them if they're open to that. You know, if they're shut down and they're not interested, then fine, no worries, no harm, no foul. But if you can create a relationship with that person and express genuine concern for their future and their welfare, then I think people open up really quickly. And then it's an opportunity for you as a person in position of power to eliminate these barriers or kind of negative consequences that might be in front of that person's career. Uh, even something as simple as a recommendation letter can really go a long way towards uh, helping someone get into the next stage of their career. And then the third thing, what was the third thing? It was, uh, first one was, first one was, I can't remember the first one. Second one was mentoring and surrounding yourself with diversity. 
there was something else I had in mind, but now it's completely escaped my mind. I think that's fine because okay. there was there was a lot of value in what you just said. I think there was more than enough yeah, value yeah, yeah, yeah. in what you just yeah. said. Yeah, channeling resources, surrounding yourself with diversity, mentoring. Yeah, maybe that's the only ones the only ones I can think of right now. Cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That was uh, that was great. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Enriching. Very enriching. Um, my head, uh, my head is starting to buzz of all the information and value I just oh. just got from you. Good, good, good. This makes me very happy to hear. Uh, being aware of your power and privilege can also be a really a good step in the right direction. I think there's far too few people who are in positions of power who recognize that they have power We're I don't know, we have this really false sense of humility where uh, we, we expect everyone to pretend like they aren't in a position of power. And so then you get this issue of like people who are in really high levels of position of power who act like they don't and then who kind of wield that power without a sense of awareness of the consequences of it. And when we talk about power, really what we're talking about is someone who can make decisions that affect others' lives but don't affect their own life. Okay. And this is the challenge is people who are in position of power act like they have this false sense of humility. Oh, no, the decisions I make affect me. No, they do not. If they do did, then they wouldn't be, you're, you're, then you're not in a position to power. But if you're making decisions that affect other people's lives that don't affect your own, uh, don't act like those decisions don't uh, have any uh, have any real effect on you because then you wouldn't have to make those decisions mm. or you wouldn't want to make those decisions if they're negatively, con- uh, if they're negatively impacting your life. Anyway, my point was we, we need to stop acting like power doesn't exist. We need to stop acting like if you're in a position of power that you don't have power because that's nonsense. Um, and then uh, we need to recognize that that power is not only driven by your ability to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the other narrative that is a bunch of nonsense is that people say, oh, I'm a self-made this, that, or the other thing. No, you're not. Uh, you built your life off of what you were given. Okay which may be you were born with a certain set of attributes that has given you an advantage in everything that you've experienced. And that's the reality of the situation. I don't think there's any shame in that. I think there's a lot of people who then carry shame because of that. Oh, I didn't do everything for myself. I had something given to me by my parents. I had a ton given to me by my parents. My parents, grandparents gave them a ton. Their parents gave them a ton. That's the whole point is we want the next generation to build off of the work that we've done. That's science. I mean, that's what we've done when science for centuries is no. build off of what previous scientists have done. Uh, and so it makes no sense to pretend like somehow we've come into this world at square zero. No, nobody's come in at square zero. We've all built off of something. But some people have started at in the basement, whereas some people have started off on floor 10. And so... To, to enable somebody who started off in the basement to achieve whatever success is in their life, which may only be to rise to floor one, we need to make sure that they have the right set of opportunities that they can then achieve that if it's reasonable to do so. Um, and maybe that's what some of it comes back to. Some people in the world feel that it's not reasonable for other people to achieve success. Hmm. And I mean, that's a really sad way of looking at it, uh, but that might be the case. I don't know. That's a very 
Very sad to have looked. I know. It's and, and, and ending on a down note, isn't it? It's like uh, Empire Strikes Back when right. Luke finds out he's David Darth Vader's father. Everything is bad, and then we have to find. We need another uh, interview. We do return mm. of the return of Universal Design. Return. We'll talk more about it. How sure. To do it better. But I think we'll we'll end on up note mm-hmm. um, instead. Okay. Because I'm all for positivity and not negativity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. What's what's the the one thing? that you won't take people take away from this conversation uh, there could be only one thing only what one would it thing. be what's the most important thing um listen to my podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i think if if i could give people well definitely listen to my podcast but uh, if i could give something in addition to that for them to take away is that um yeah. We, we all have an opportunity, we all have opportunities in our lives to affect others and how we do so uh, can really change our own satisfaction. So, you know, there's this, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated kind of thing. I think there's quite a bit of truth to that. I think if we can treat other people in a way uh, with dignity and respect uh, then it's going to be, it's even if they don't treat us with that same level of dignity and respect, I think there's still a lot of joy and happiness that we can get out of those, out of that, out of that experience. Uh, it doesn't have to be all negativity and conflict. Um, we can respectfully disagree with each other. Um, but I think giving people that benefit of the doubt, giving them that opportunity no matter what we're told, so again, this is about like the narratives that we're told versus what we actually do can be very different things. So we're a lot of times we're told these narratives that these groups of people aren't or are like subhuman almost, or they don't deserve our respect because of who they are, what they've done, anything like that. But we can still take a step back from that narrative and give someone that respect, give someone that benefit of the doubt. And just allow them to be heard. And I think a lot of times once when we start doing that, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean how we, we have to be complacent and like let them do whatever they want. It just means that, w- that the issues are way more complex than what we may have realized. And that someone that we're painting as a bad guy or as a good guy may in fact not be all bad or all good. And so, uh, yeah, just um, extending that hand and trying to understand uh, a little bit more about where someone else is coming from. I'd leave it there. Amazing. Yeah. Cool. I to think we're, we're going to think think a little bit about that one, what mm-hmm. you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good note to, to end and take some time to reflect awesome that makes me happy cool where can people find you online uh so i'm on uh, most uh social medias as dr anthony g dr anthony g uh and then you can get me on my website uh, dr anthony dot design and then uh, podcast is universal design in life and work um newsletter you can subscribe on the website dranthony.design again dranthony.design and uh yeah i look forward to carrying on these conversations with anybody and anyone who wants to engage with this sort of uh work because it's so critically important so if you dm me or if you uh kind of reply to any of my social media posts uh you i can guarantee you a response because i don't leave these sort of things uh unattended to i think it's important for us all to have a dialogue around these issues 
Amazing. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thank you. And uh, I got a ton of value from this. Awesome. That makes me happy. Hope to talk to you soon again. Mm-hmm.